0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you from the team behind the environmental magazine The Ends Report. Every fortnight, we'll give you a rundown of the biggest green news stories, we'll take you through some of the nastier chemicals creating problems for people and wildlife, and we'll take a forensic look at some of the more deep-rooted environmental issues facing us today. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and this is The Eco Chamber. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Freshly Minted Environment Act, the ongoing scrap over sewage pollution in our rivers and seas, controversial plans to scale back legal protections for wildlife, and why a seemingly benign chemical might not be so benign after all, and finally, how excess nutrients in sensitive habitats are putting the kibosh on housing developments. So that's a lot to get through, so without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. So first up, we're going to talk about the big green news of the fortnight. With me in the studio, I have... I'm Tess Colley, I'm a journalist with ENDS Report.
1: And I'm Connor McGlone, senior online reporter for the ENDS Report.
0: So the first story we're going to talk about is the Environment Act, so earlier this month, the Environment Bill finally made it onto the statute books after three years of uh, dragging its way through Parliament. The government says the resulting act will clean up the country's air, restore natural habitats, increase biodiversity, reduce waste, and make better use of our resources. It sounds fabulous, but do these claims stack up? Tess, can you let me know, what do you think? Which aspects of the Environment Act does it really deliver on?
2: Oh, I think a lot of people I speak to... Um, who are in nature conservation and that sort of thing the big win for them is well you know some are even calling it a world-leading target to halt the decline of biodiversity in the UK by 2030 and that was a very hard-fought campaign and you know it wasn't in there at all to begin with and people really fought
0: for it and that's a really big win. Are there elements in the bill that will actually force the government to do these things? I mean, is the is the governance and enforcement elements strong enough? Uh, well, that's a little less peachy, perhaps. Um,
2: the government they do have to set certain targets that is in the bill. They've got to um, they haven't set them yet, but there's a requirement to set targets in air, water, and biodiversity. But uh, the governance system. So there's the the Office for Environmental Protection, which is going to be the new green watchdog, is going to be making sure these things are done, basically. And lots of people aren't happy about the independence that that body has. So what's lacking? Uh, Well, at the moment, as it stands, the Secretary of State or ministers have the power to offer, offer guidance is the phrasing, uh, offer guidance to the OEP, the watchdog, in their enforcement policy basically that enforcement policy decides what is and what isn't a serious environmental breach Uh, and that's obviously going to be really important in deciding what things they actually go
0: after and who they go after. Uh, Sounds highly questionable so what kind of uh, organizations do you think might fall under the remit of the OEP's uh, sticks and carrots? So
2: public authorities are going to be in line uh, for the OEP so that's going to be um Anyone from natural England to local authorities um and they're all going to be getting a bit worried. There's already some complaints have been filed with the watchdog in advance of it actually being up and running uh, and that's that's you know um lots of problems with slurry and manure and that sort of thing being mm. spread in places. it shouldn't be um
0: and these are the things which people want it to look into. Mm. Speaking of slurry and manure and all those horrible things, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so sewage seems to feature quite strongly in the Environment Act, but that wasn't always the case, was it, Tess? Can you tell us how that came about?
2: Yeah, so when the when the bill first appeared, there was very little about water pollution in regards to sewage. Uh, but in the last, well, certainly in the last year, it's really really got a lot of public attention and uh, there have been again campaigners but also politicians uh, some appear a uh, in the house of lords brought in an amendment to the bill uh, which got a lot of support it would see it would have seen uh, water companies have a legal duty to uh, reduce the, the storm overflows which is the mechanism by which so it basically ends up in our rivers um, to reduce them we haven't quite ended up with that in the bill we've got a version, but the only reason we've got a version of that that amendment is because of the public pressure. Now, water companies are going to have to reduce the impacts of storm overflows, which is not quite the same thing. I'm mm. sure you'll agree, but it's it's better than nothing,
0: I suppose. Is the feeling? Mm. It sounds like it gives the sector quite a lot of wiggle room. Um, but talking of sewage, that brings us on to our, our second story: the um, environment agency and Offwat have been under fire from campaigners for a really long time for not. Uh, enforcing rules around sewage pollution and allowing it to happen. So the water companies use their CSOs, combined sewer overflows, to do this dumping as well as I think coming from their treatment works. Um, but right. Connor, can you tell us how that how that happens? Is it is it something that's legal? Um, how mm-hmm. does it take place?
1: So yeah, um, the water companies are quite quick to point out that they are permitted to actually use these combined sewage overflows to release sewage into rivers and the sea. Um, But they're only meant to be using these um, overflows uh, during times of severe rainfall or um, snow melt or things like that. But um, they're also meant to treat a certain volume of the sewage um, that that they are emitting. And a lot of water companies um, will claim that this is because they have ageing infrastructure, um, it goes back quite a long way, especially in London. You see that the, the sewage system was was really built in the Victorian era. But that all sounds very well, but there are a lot of suspicions that water companies are using CSOs on a regular basis and not just after times of severe rainfall. Uh, for example, I was talking to the owner of a oyster business in in Dorset last week. Um, and they've had to recall a lot of their catch, and it's affected their businesses a lot.
0: Well, the sewage has actually affected the, the oysters.
1: That's right. So, yes, the, the business was um, told to recall its produce because of fears over norovirus, which is a nasty illness to get. And the owner um, said that the sewage being being discharged into the sea there was the direct cause of...
0: What does the water company say? Is this, which which water company is
1: it? This was Wessex Water. Did they
0: deny that or
1: w- Wessex Water have den- have have denied that um, it's specifically to do with them? They say there's a lot of different sources of pollution, s- such as agriculture. Mm-hmm. But uh, the r- the business owners in Dorset aren't really buying that. They say that they check the weekly, they, on a weekly basis, they check their, um the levels in the water there, and that. It seems to them that Wessex water discharging whenever it rains doesn't have to be a, a particularly um, big deluge. They'll just use that regularly.
0: Hmm. Like you needed another reason not to eat oysters. <laughs> uh, so, um, so according to the water sector's own reports, because they have to report into the Environment Agency on the number of times that they spill raw sewage into rivers and seas, they say last year it was 400,000 times and it was for around 3.1 million hours we know that that's not the case we know that that's going it's going to be a lot more than that and even that you know if that's the minimum then it's terrifying to think what the what the reality is but tess what would be the sort of public health and environmental impacts of all this sewage going into our waters well there are lots unfortunately i think a good example it's one that came up
2: recently it's in oxford um There's lots of popular bathing spots around there. And some samples back in September were taken by some volunteers in these spots. And uh, the levels of bacteria were found on average to be twice the recommended safety threshold Mm. um, uh, back in May and June, which is pretty shocking. And several people reported to this volunteer group of falling ill after uh, having bathed in them. And even more recently, a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, the MP for um the part of Oxford, Leila Moran, she said in Parliament that she's campaigning for this these areas to have a bathing status, which would basically mean they'd end up getting more regulation, more monitoring at least. Um and she said she'd had a constituent whose daughter became sick after a swimmer was laid up with stomach cramps for several days and another person needing antibiotics. So it can really make you ill swimming in our rivers, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you do see a lot of local news stories of, you know, especially during the summer of dogs and children getting sick. It's really frightening. The level
1: of underreporting could be quite astounding, I think. Um, If we look at um, a group called the Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, they've looked at Thames Water's data, and they think that the Thames Water may be, that 95% of uh, the firm's spills may be going unrecorded, which is just a, a crazy amount. Uh, amount of unrecorded sewage spillages
0: yeah if you scale that up across the water sector that's phenomenal isn't it can you imagine yeah the water sector hasn't even denied it they're just sort of so we're looking into this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're
1: going to look into this. And uh, so then it's. It, I guess it's great news that the Environment Agency and Ofwat have started this investigation. Yeah. But there is the whole question of uh, why now? It's a, a bit late, right? Yeah, mm. and they're
0: saying, um, well, we threatened to put all these monitors on the sewage outflows for all, for the water sector. And that has, what's, has woken the sector up. And they've come to them and saying, actually, we think there might be a problem. And then all the campaigners are saying, hang on. <laughs> it was all our work, you know, revealing that, you know, they are, they're, they're dumping outside of their environmental permits they've done it, don't try and call that your your win, which I think is quite amusing um, they're also a little bit concerned as well, the campaign is that this is going to create an information blackout because they're saying that if this goes under a proper um, uh, investigation and they're looking around 2,000 outflows that will mean that whenever the campaigns are trying to get information from the water companies the water companies or the environment agency or whoever it is will say I'm sorry this is part of an ongoing investigation, we can't give you that information so They're a little bit concerned about that. So this is uh, another one to watch. Uh The next story we're going to talk about is how the government is considering scaling back legal protections for some endangered species. So this doesn't sound like a very good idea at all. Uh, Tess, can you uh, fill us in on that? I think you've been working on stories related to this.
2: Yeah, so the habitats regulations—the uh, name of the, the thing in question—they're um, the basis for many of the UK's protections for threatened species or, or vulnerable uh, habitats, and they came into law when we were in the when we were in the EU. And back earlier in this year, Secretary for the Environment George Eustace, said that the government wanted to look at refocusing uh, <laughs> them. Euphemisms. Mm-hmm. Euphemisms. Uh, so to ref and obviously this caused quite a alarm. what does refocus mean? um and you know some people say, well, you know if you're gonna do this, you you must add into the amendment in the environment act uh that you'll only change them to strengthen them. This was not taken up Mm -hmm. um but the government say you know they're not they don't obviously they obviously they don't want to weaken anything why would anyone want to do that we've got all these targets to halt the decline of of biodiversity by 2030 etc etc however um there's also a lot of pressure on the government they've got this big manifesto commitment to build 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 quickly and there's some worries that they the government may want to relax some protections in order that people can Or developers can develop quicker um, because at the moment the habitats regulations are often a thorn in the side of developers because you know they want to develop in a certain place but there's a protected there's Mm -hmm. a protected species or something like that yeah
1: those
2: goddamn newts yeah um uh, yes and
1: (laughs) boris johnson i seem to remember got on the case of newts didn't he he did years
2: ago yeah people Mm. go after newts
1: Poor things.
0: Poor newts. And I
2: don't know I don't, what they've done
1: think, to deserve it. I think it's very expensive to
0: count them and move them. I think that's what the developers don't like. Yes. Yeah, Marcus
2: Rashford had to move some newts because he wanted that's to build right. a mansion. Yeah. He so, probably did it properly, didn't he? He probably
0: didn't downscale there. It's true. Legal we like Marcus first.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> um,
0: so, what 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 kind of species is this going to impact? Then we've mentioned newts. Are they going to fall under the scope of these rules that might be scaled back, or is it just endangered species? Or how does that work? Uh, well, the habitats
2: regulations they 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 specify specific kinds of of, of animals. And, and places so we've got lots of protected sites mm. they they have all these abbreviations obviously there's you know s-a-c-s-p-a um but they're from very specific and for particular kind of animals there are kinds of newts um i can't quite remember it's great crest a, a great S yes, yes, yes. so um there are great crested newts for hang example hang your head in
0: shame tess leave <laughs> i know it's just
2: the newts there's so many i'm always thinking about them and then i forget who they are um and certain types of butterflies, particularly mm. um, these are these are internationally protected. They're considered internationally valuable, um, and we also have some national designations, which sometimes are often the same. Mm. Um, but habitats, you know, they they also cover things like you know otters or harbour porpoises, which are generally a bit more, you know. Oh, I was about to say sexy. That's not what I mean. But they're more politically. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, you know, they're more They're more fluffy. People get on board with protecting. Oh, that... <laughs> well, have... actually, the otters are. They're waterproof. The yeah. right. <laughs>
0: they're slick, I'd say. They're
2: slick. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. God, I should just stop talking about animals. I don't do very well. Um, but. Basically, there's some that are more politically friendly to say you're protecting the otters, people maybe yeah. care less. Iconic the general, issues, pub, the yeah. general public may not have as many feelings about great-crested newts. Yeah. Um, but but cons- they're very important,
0: obviously, conservation-wise. And that's so people mm. are worried. So the UK is basically one of the most nature-depleted countries in mm. the world, which is a horrifying fact and very, very depressing. But um, Connor, you've been looking at some stats related to that. How is the UK wildlife doing?
1: Yeah, and in, uh, in short... Uh, Not very well. There's a big report uh, that was out in 2019 called the State of Nature Report, um, which revealed that 41% of UK species have declined. 41%? 41%. It's quite a big amount, I'm afraid. Um, 26% have increased, uh, and 33% have showed little change.
0: What kind of species are, are falling off a cliff yeah. Metaphorically speaking,
1: metaphorically speaking, butterflies and moths um, have been particularly hard hit. Butterflies are down by seventeen percent, and moths are down by twenty-five percent. Um,
0: we got any new stats there? <laughs> Tess might want to know.
1: Any new stats? Unfortunately, not. Um But we can go into the types of butterflies. Yeah, <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> the number of um, the, the numbers of species, such as the high brown fritillary and grayling, um, that actually require more specialised habitats. They've um, declined by more than three quarters.
0: And is this because of they've lost their habitats or pesticides? or?
1: Yeah, a, a lot of it has it's been put down to f- the changes in farming practices. And there are some good news. Um, some animals have, have been on the up, and for example, bats have been doing really well.
2: Particularly yeah. in churches. There's a, there's a big kind of link between
0: bats and churches. Really? Yeah so the i think the, the global um targets called the ichi targets because that's where the, agree, where the agreement was um, formed um, where countries were supposed to improve within a decade their their uh, the biodiversity and i think none of the countries lived up to that and now they're looking at formulating new targets to improve biodiversity for um the next biodiversity cop which which is is that coming up this month coming up is that next year Tess?
2: yes so the much delayed biodiversity cop is coming up next year kind of late april may kind of time it's been delayed i think this is the third time now mm-hmm. uh, because of the pandemic yeah. but um yeah that's where we're gonna well we're meant to see a whole load of new targets to be set um you know but like you say we didn't the world largely failed to meet these ones last time and the uk did say it met four of them around 20 weather? out of 20 yeah. so four out of 20 although then one there was a bit of debate whether the uk had actually met one of them um about protecting a percentage of uh terrestrial and, and inland water bodies yeah. um because there's a debate about when you say something's protected, what does that actually mean? It's, actually, it's not actually as clear cut as you might think. Mm. Um, but yeah, we're going to be setting some new targets in um, Kunming in China. There's going to be a lot riding on that. And they will be targets for the next 10 years. Great.
0: There's another to keep an eye on. Although there's targets there won't be legally binding, so nobody gets into trouble when they're not met. Well, yes. Conveniently. Conveniently. That was really interesting. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Connor. And we'll uh, see you in a fortnight for the next set of Big Green News. Our next section is the Chemical Brothers, where we have two journalists who are going to talk to us about some of the nastier chemicals that we may come across in the environment. We have...
3: Gareth Simpkins, senior writer on The Ends Report.
4: And I'm Simon Pickstone. I'm a senior reporter at Ends Europe, which is a EU-focused sister publication to the end report.
0: And so what substances are you going to talk to us about today?
4: Well, we've got a cracker up our sleeves for you today, Rachel, and it relates to the hole in the ozone layer. Um, And as many people may know, it's one of the kind of globally most recognised environmental problems since the 1980s. Um, And generally, this is thought of as a bit of an environmental success story. So we had the 1987 Montreal Protocol, uh, when the world's major emitters agreed to phase out the use of something called CFCs, a class of substance called CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, which were uh, effectively destroying the ozone layer and causing all kinds of problems with radiation, since the 80s has shown quite promising signs that it is shrinking. Although there's a good deal of annual variation, what's happened is we've removed CFCs and we've created a case of regrettable substitution. CFCs were by and large replaced by another class of chemicals called HFCs, which are hydrofluorocarbons. These don't destroy the ozone layer, but they have an unfortunate side, side effect of being an extremely potent greenhouse gas. Um, what we then had in 2016 was that the world came together in, in Kigali, um, in Rwanda, and signed a, an amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which is now known as the Kigali Amendment, in which basically countries agreed to phase down the use of HFCs as well.
0: Okay.
4: New research, however, indicates that one of the widely used substitutes, which we thought was basically harmless, turns out it may have a sting in its tail. And Gareth here is with us to explain a bit more of what this new research suggests.
3: Well, it's all about how one of these F gases, uh, namely one three three tetrafluoropropene, which also rejoices in the uh, name of HFC one two three four ZE, really trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Breaks down in the atmosphere. It's quite widely used in supermarket refrigeration, for example, Um, but I also understand that it has a number of other applications. Now, compared to some of the chemicals in this group, it looks absolutely ideal. Its global warming potential is less than one, so it's not even as bad a climate forcer as carbon dioxide, which, ironically enough, is actually rather weak. Um, Some HFCs are thousands of times worse than CO2. That's in terms
4: of their potential for per tonne increasing
3: global temperatures. Yes, yes. uh, This chemical is also far less flammable and less toxic than some other alternatives in the class, an issue that has caused some uh, regulatory controversy over the years. So far, sounds great, right? But research circulated by Australian researchers earlier this year is a real Houston, we have a problem moment. It's not been peer-reviewed yet, so far as I understand, so it should be taken with a grain of salt, I suppose. Nevertheless... Under the influence of sunlight, HFC1234ZE degrades into trifluoroacetaldehyde, which in turn mostly degrades into the radical CF3 and 4 mil, so that's uh, CHO. But that is not the end of the story. About 2% turns into HFC23, which is, wait for it, 11,700 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide when it's analysed over 100 years. So what looked like a magic solution turns out to have a really nasty sting in its tail. If this reaction is accounted for, its global warming potential should really be considered as closer to 234.
4: That's 234 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. CO2,
3: absolutely, yes. Now, this may go some way to explaining why there's a rising amount of HFC-23 in the atmosphere, which should be falling as a result of the Kigali Amendment. Uh, The rise has been previously assumed to be the result of surreptitious production in China, which no doubt is very much largely the case. But now the picture has been made rather more complex.
4: What are the lessons from this discovery?
3: Well, it looks like the global system of F-gas regulation needs to be modified to accommodate atmospheric chemistry.
4: So... What's happening to a gas when it enters the atmosphere? why is it breaking down?
3: That's purely just
4: from solar energy
3: yes precisely the um a photon hits one of these um one of these molecules and it breaks it apart, much like uh, a lot of other atmospheric reactions, for example, how um ozone ironically is uh, created at low level
4: and so presumably what what you're saying is um if the results of the study are confirmed when they're peer reviewed, we could actually see a bunch of chemicals that we thought were basically harmless in terms of their global warming potential reassessed based on how they're breaking down in the atmosphere.
3: One might make that assumption, yes, it's it's not a bad one. This in turn has serious regulatory consequences for the entire global system of F-gas regulation.
4: And I mean, one of the things when someone who's potentially looking for a new fridge or an air conditioning unit or something that involves having uh, some kind of coolant F-gas Are there alternatives? Are there there gases we could use that don't have any potential for breaking down in the atmosphere like this?
3: Yeah, there's a huge range of alternatives to F-gas which are being uh, adopted um, around the world. Um, Classic one, which has been used for almost a century now, is CO2. There's also um, ammonia and a variety of other gases as well. But all of them have their own difficulties and uh, eccentricities. And HFCs work very very well it's why they were adopted
4: well i think um that's uh something to keep us up at night gareth thank you very much for that thank you Simon. Uh, i'll pass back to rachel now
0: thank you thank you simon thank you gareth that is yeah very concerning news and something we will have to keep our eyes very firmly fixed on now we're going into our deep dive section today i have in the studio with me
5: i'm jamie carpenter editor of ends report and ends europe
0: Thanks, Jamie. We're going to be talking about the chronic pollution affecting some of our most precious water bodies. In this scenario, the pollution is coming from both farmland and the water sector. Nutrients from sewage and fertiliser are pouring into water bodies, creating algal blooms, which use up the available oxygen. And as a result, it chokes the wildlife in the river or in the coastal water. But this isn't just a problem for the environment. It's become a huge headache for councils and the government, too. Jamie, can you let us know what's going on?
5: Yes, thank you. Well, um, yeah, this is about algal blooms of doom. And as you just said, the environmental problem we're talking about here is eutrophication. And this is where nitrate and phosphate overloading encourages algal blooms that can starve water bodies of oxygen and kill aquatic species. But as well as spelling doom for wildlife, this is also spelling doom for house building in some parts of the country. So in a recent feature, I took an in-depth look at this issue. Um, It created big headlines, I think about two and a half years ago when Natural England advice caused a big housing lockjam in the Solent region, um, and tens of thousands of homes were stuck at that point.
0: So that that advice, why did the why did the Natural England issue that advice if it was going to create such a problem?
5: Well, I think they 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 felt that like they had to. It was in response to a European Court Justice ruling known as the the Dutch nitrogen case, um, and, and basically as a result of that, without going into the details of what the case said, it meant that in those areas, planning authorities could only grant permission for. New schemes, if the developers were able to demonstrate that they would be nutrient neutral.
0: Okay, so is that for development anywhere, or just development in particular designated sites?
5: It's it's slightly confusing in that Natural England seems to be taking one, one area after an area to investigate the issues and then issue advice. So, essentially, if you're in somewhere like Solent, where where you have uh, European protected sites, so things like Ramsar sites or special protect, special areas of protection, those, those sorts of things then natural england is concerned about the runoff of nitrates into those those waterways and that's caused the that's caused the problem there
0: okay but the government obviously has a housing crisis on its hands and it's telling councils that they have to very quickly set out how many houses they're going to build and where they're going to build them so that seems like they're sort of stuck in a bit of a, a quandary
5: yeah, I mean, I think I think the the I think one of the things that spurred the or what one of the reasons we I, I wanted to look at the feature was that the issue that kind of came to a head in the Solent. Boris Johnson said that he would deploy a ministerial Dino rod to to clear the blockage, <laughs> and um, I, I thought, well, let, let's let's kind of see what's whether he's managed to clear the blockage, and and predictably that hasn't happened. So the crisis has kind of got worse. So there there are there are more areas now that are affected. So it was just the Solent, and now it's spread to Parts of Kent, Somerset, Cornwall, Herefordshire, parts of Wales, um, and it does seem that although there have been some success in some parts of the country in finding mitigation solutions that have unlocked some house building, that actually in some areas the the problems are really intractable. I think even I think I think a few months ago Somerset authorities wrote to the government sort of pleading for for help to solve the issue because the, the issue there is about phosphates rather than nitrates, which is more difficult to deal with. Um, and so so it seems that firstly, we're a very, very long way away from actually having a solution, but also I think people are concerned that other areas might actually get drawn into the crisis as well as natural England sorts of looks at other, yeah. other areas that have, have things like Ramsar sites.
0: So if you're a developer, how are you expected to prove to a local authority that your 500 home development is nitrate neutral? How can you do that?
5: Well, what, what what most of these areas are doing, they seem to have commissioned consultants to produce calculators, so developers can actually kind of calculate the, I suppose, the the quantum of their developments and what the what the kind of output would be. And then, then developers will have, in the Solent, where where things have been going on the longest amount of time, they have possible mitigation solutions. So, so they might they might, for example, put in an on-site wastewater treatment plant or buy land to put in place. Um, a wetland, or, or there, there are there is a kind of a, an emerging market of third-party agricultural sort of mitigation providers. So essentially, you're 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 paying a, a landowner to rewild their land, so taking it out agricultural production, and, and and that would reduce the the runoff of nutrients from that location.
0: So that's uh, another of Greta Thunberg's favorite things. It's more offsetting, is it?
5: Yes, there's a lot more offsetting, and it's kind of interesting that it's kind of. Um, the whole market for biodiversity net gain as well is happening at the same time and that's part of that whole kind of thing. And so I think it's going to be something we're seeing a lot more of in the future.
0: Yeah. This hasn't been a fresh twist in the saga in the last few weeks because obviously nutrients, they're a huge problem. Um, But also hasn't there been another development which is creating another headache for developments along similar lines?
5: Yes. The the, the issue now is... um... In Sussex, there's an issue around water neutrality. So it's a kind of similar process where... What does that mean? Basically, it's Natural England has issued advice to these uh, Sussex authorities and they're concerned not, not not about nutrients in this case, but it's about abstraction. So these areas are water stressed and they, they want...
0: Abstraction is removing water from the environment for yeah, drinking.
5: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they want developments to be able to prove that they are water neutral instead. Um, and this has had a... A fairly immediate impact in those areas where planning applications have been put on hold and and local plan making has been paused. So I think I think there's there's certainly some concern around what the implications might be of that and whether it might affect other areas because we know there are a lot of other water stressed areas where they are affected by similar issues.
0: So who, in your opinion, is to blame for this problem? Is it the farmers? Is it the water sector? Is it the is it the regulators for putting too many restrictions on councils? What do you think?
5: yeah well there's there's been a lot of um finger pointing around this issue so i think i think um the development industry is unhappy about it because they feel they've been unfairly penalised when you actually look at the inputs of nutrients there's a, there's a whole load of diffuse pollution from agriculture and and mm. um the water industry so you you'll have seen the um drone footage of of sewage being pumped into Langston Harbour in the Solent which is one of the areas that's worst affected by this and people have people have kind of made that connection um and i think i think there's, there's a sense that Putting it in a wetland here or there is not really a way of of kind of solving a problem. You need something more holistic, and I think I think ultimately to go back to the Dino Rod analogy, it's a bit like when I had a sewage leak in my garden and we got Dino Rod out and they couldn't fix it, and had to get Thames Water along and they fixed it. So it's kind of right. it seems like it's a um something that that has to be solved by the government working with the water industry and and doing doing more around that to actually solve the solve the problem in a, in a holistic way
0: yeah i mean unwittingly all the stories that we've talked about in this episode the underlying theme is that these are chronic problems and they're systemic problems and they're going to take a huge amount of time energy and money to sort out but um, that's really interesting thank you jamie uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of the eco chamber thank you to our editor jamie carpenter to journalists tess Colley, conor mcgillone gareth simpkins and simon pickstone if you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com and fill your boots. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next week.